Let me ask you to take your Bibles tonight and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2 as we continue our study there. We're going to be looking at the first six verses tonight. I want to begin tonight reading a couple of things I'm sure that you've heard before. One of them is by a comedian. The other is just kind of a, uh, an essay called Only in America. And, uh, but I think this is kind of interesting. It says, Only in America can a pizza get to your house faster than the ambulance. Only in America are there handicapped parking spaces in front of a skating rink. Only in America do drugstores make the sick walk all the way to the back of the store to get the prescription while healthy people can buy their cigarettes at the front. Only in America do people order double cheeseburgers, large fries, and a Diet Coke. Only in America do we leave cars worth thousands of dollars in the driveway and put our junk in the garage. Hello. Only in America do we use answering machines to screen calls and have call waiting so we won't miss a call from someone we didn't want to talk to in the first place. Only in America do we buy hot dogs and packages of ten and buns and packages of eight. Those are all true, aren't they? George Carlin in Paradox of Our Time, and this one's a little more famous, so you've probably heard it, said the paradox of our time in history is that we have taller buildings but shorter tempers wider freeways but narrower viewpoints. We spend more but have less. We buy more but enjoy less. We have bigger houses and smaller families, more conveniences but less time. We have more degrees but less sense, more knowledge but less judgment, more experts yet more problems, more medicine but less wellness. We drink too much, smoke too much, spend too recklessly, laugh too little, drive too fast, get too angry, stay up too late, get too tired, read too little, watch TV too much, and pray too seldom. We have multiplied our possessions but reduced our values. We talk too much, love too seldom, and hate too often. We've learned how to make a living but not a life. We've added years to life, not life to years. We've been all the way to the moon and back but have trouble crossing the street to meet a new neighbor. We've done larger things but not better things. We've cleaned up the air but polluted the soul. We conquered the atom, but not our prejudice. We write more, but learn less. We plan more, but accomplish less. We've learned to rush, but not to wait. We build more computers to hold more information, to process more copies than ever, but we communicate less and less. That's soberingly true. You know, in spite of all that, this is the greatest country in the world in which to live. Still is. And it's, a, it's wonderful when we can sing that song, God Bless America, but you know, I think it's our turn. We pray for God to bless America, but I think it's time for Christians to bless America. We need to do something good for America. We need to impart a blessing to America. And we can do a lot of things. We can be good citizens. We can vote. We can be patriotic. We can salute the flag, we can sing the national anthem, we can protect our, our currency and it, its motto, we can show courtesy to all people, we can obey laws, we can take care of the elderly, we can pay our taxes, uh, and we don't park in handicapped parking spaces when we're not really handicapped. But Paul gives us some more suggestions in 1 Timothy chapter 2, and let me just read those first six verses with you again. He says, I exhort therefore that first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and for all that are in authority, that we may lead 
a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and to come into the knowledge of the truth. There is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. I just want you to notice three things tonight, and the first is, is that we need to pray unceasingly. Now, last week we talked about the four kinds of prayers, the difference between supplications and intercessions and, and giving of thanks and, uh, and these different kinds of prayers and uh, the request that were made known. Uh, but we need to be in prayer, it says, for kings and for all that are in authority. One of the ways, best ways we can bless God and bless America is by praying unceasingly. I've heard it said, and I thank God for, we've got a, a, a good number of Christian school teachers in our church. There's a good number here tonight, and I'm thankful for that. I heard it said, though, that a teacher went into her classroom about 15 minutes before class was supposed to begin. She caught a bunch of boys huddled uh, together in the back corner of the class, and she says, what are you all doing? She's, they said, well, we're shooting dice. She says, oh, good, I thought you were in here praying. That's sad, but in some parts of the country, it's true. People often huddle together here in America, but it's not usually for prayer anymore. It's to play something, attend something, watch something, but seldom is it to pray. Samuel Chadwick once said, the one concern of the devil is to keep Christians from praying. He fears nothing from prayerless studies, prayerless work, prayerless religion. He laughs at our toil, mocks at our wisdom, but he trembles when we pray. Why is that? Because that's what invites the power of God into our lives. Andrew Murray, the great Scottish evangelist, said, The man who mobilizes the Christian church to pray will make the greatest contribution to world evangelization in history. Why? Because evangelism doesn't really work unless you pray. Charles Spurgeon once said, I'd rather teach one man to pray, one man to pray than to teach ten men to preach. Ian Bounds, who wrote a whole series of books on prayers, uh, he said, what the church needs today is not machinery, not new organizations or more novel methods, but men whom the Holy Spirit can use, men mighty in prayer. The Holy Spirit does not flow through methods, but through men of prayer. And that's what he said that we most need. We've got to pray. We must pray for everyone who means anything to us at all, for some who don't mean anything to us, we need to pray for our spouses, our children, our family members, our ministers. God, help us please pray for your ministers, for our church leaders, and for our country's leaders. We need to pray at home. More kids need to hear Daddy pray at home. We need to pray at church. We need to pray at prayer meetings. We need to pray while we're driving our cars or doing the laundry or doing the dishes. I remember years ago reading a little book by a friar by the name of Friar Brother Lawrence talked about learning to pray and commune with God while he washed the dishes in the abbey where he was a monk. We must pray every chance that we get if we're to see God at work in our lives. James chapter 5 and 16 says, The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. or the, It's the fervent prayer of a righteous man. How effective is prayer? Let me tell you a story. It's kind of interesting. Most of you know who Dwight L. Moody is. He was a famous... Uh, uh, preacher, He started, it was one of the people responsible for starting the Sunday school movement here in America. He was a great evangelist. Uh, 
And one time during his ministry, he went to England, and he determined he really wasn't going to preach while he was in England. Uh, he just wanted to go and to listen. He knew that England had once been the great bastion of Christianity, and he wanted to find out what had happened. Why was it in decline? Why were churches so dead there? And so he went to listen. And then one Sunday morning, he walked into a church, and somebody heard that Dwight L. Moody was there, and they asked him to come up to the pulpit in that London church. And, and, and the, the right atmosphere just didn't seem to be there. And, and sometimes as a pastor, I'll tell you, when you, you stand up in front of a congregation, there are times that you think, God's not here. Uh, that's a bad feeling. You kind of feel like you're up there alone, and you pray, and you ask for God to be there. But folks, you know, it's up to us in the pews on Saturday night to ask God to bless the Sunday services. We need to come with our hearts prepared for God. And a lot of people don't do that anymore. It's just kind of like, well, well, we'll squeeze God in on Sunday after everything else and around everything else, and we don't come with our hearts prepared. And that's how Dwight L. Moody, when he fell up, felt uh, when he got into the pulpit. He said he never had such a hard time preaching. And when he got up there, he said everything seemed dead, including himself, and he later wrote, What a fool I was to consent to preach. I came here to listen, and here I am preaching. The awful thought came to him that he had earlier accepted another appointment to preach that same night. He didn't really want to, especially after the services that morning that were just so dead. And the only thing that kept him going to do it is he'd given his word, and D.L. Moody was a man of his word. That night, uh, he got into the pulpit and sensed that something was different. And he got up and he preached a message, and he said later, it was though the powers of an unseen world had fallen on that audience. At the end of his sermon, he says, if there's a man or a woman here tonight that will accept Jesus Christ as their personal Savior, would they stand up? And 500 people stood up at one time to receive Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. But what you may not know is the story behind the story. You see, when he preached at that kind of dead, dull church that morning, one of the church members went home and spoke to her invalid sister and told her invalid sister that there was an American preacher there that day by the name of D.L. Moody. And her invalid sister says, What? Mr. Moody from Chicago was here? She says, I have been praying for a long time that he would come to England, to London, to preach in our church. If only I'd known he was going to preach this morning, I would have eaten no breakfast. I would have spent the whole time in prayer. He says, she says, now sister, go out of the room, lock the door, and no matter who comes to see me, I'm not available. I'm going to spend the rest of the afternoon and the evening in prayer. That's the story behind the story, the story of why 500 people stood to accept Jesus Christ as their Savior. Does it do any good to pray for people? I remember when I was a student at Texas A&M University, and uh, college offers a lot of courses that aren't taught in class, and most of them are in things that are bad. And I did some things I wasn't very proud of, and when God turned my life around and when I asked God to take control of my life, when I rededicated my life, I was already a Christian, but I rededicated my life to Jesus Christ. One day I was in the Association of Baptist Students there at uh, just off the A&M campus and I looked on the door to the prayer room 
and my name was on the prayer list. I am convinced that I'm here today because some students at Texas A&M University prayed for me. And because of that, God changed my friendships. He changed my relationships. He got me to surrender to a call to preach that I've been fighting for three years, all because somebody prayed. Folks, I'm here as a living testimony that prayer will change people. If you pray hard enough, if you pray long enough, if you pray fervently enough, God will change some things for the better. Look at verse 2. He says there's a reason we need to be making these prayers, and it is the second thing we need to do to bless America, and that is we need to live righteously. He says we need to make all these intercessions and giving a thanks for all men, for kings and for all that are in authority. Why? That we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. How many of you feel like in the United States we're enjoying a quiet and peaceable life? I don't listen to the news as much as any of you do, I'm sure, but I know enough to know that we don't live a quiet and peaceable life. You know, we're quiet means worry-free. Peaceable means that we're about making peace. How many of you ever have a moment once in a while in traffic where you don't act like a Christian? Now, I, I have an advantage over you. Because sometimes when I'm in traffic and somebody does so, and by the way, it took me an hour and a half this morning to drive from this church to the church where my son was going to preach. I got to hear the last two minutes of his message because of road construction. I'm convinced that the devil is not red with horns and a pitchfork and a tail. He wears an orange vest and he puts out construction cones on the highway. That's what the devil looks like. And uh, so I, I wasn't in the best of attitudes toward uh, uh, traffic uh, engineers this morning. Uh, when somebody does something stupid in traffic, I'm too spiritual to say what I think in English, so I say it in Chinese. <laughs> Somehow or other, that feels better because nobody knows what sentiment I'm expressing. I read about a preacher that uh, had a similar experience and was candid enough to write it down. He says, the ugly part of me showed his beastly face the other night. I was driving on a two-lane road that was about to become a single lane. A woman in the car beside me was in the lane that continued. I was in the one that stopped. I needed to be ahead of her. My schedule was no doubt more important than hers. After all, I'm a man of the cloth. So I floored it. Guess what? She did too. When the lane ended, she was a fender ahead of me. I growled and slowed and let her go ahead. Over her shoulder, she gave me a sweet little bye-bye wave. Arr. I started to dim my headlights, and then I paused. The sinister part of me said, wait a minute. Am I not to shed light on dark places? So I put a little high beam in her rearview mirror. She retaliated by slowing down to a crawl. The woman was mean. She wasn't going to go beyond 15 miles an hour and I wasn't going to take my lights out of her rearview mirror. Like two stubborn donkeys, she kept it slow and I kept it bright. After more unkind thoughts, the road widened and I started to pass. Wouldn't you know it, a red light came on and left the two of us side by side at an intersection. What happened next was both good news and bad news. The good news, she waved at me. The bad news is it's not a wave you'd ever want to imitate. Moments later, conviction surfaced. Why did I do that? Why is the beast within me? 
you know, how we act in traffic is part of your testimony. How you pay your bills on time is part of your testimony. Everything that you do in public and the way you deport yourself and the way you dress and the way you talk is part of your testimony. And he says we ought to live righteously. That means while you're at home. It means while you're at work. It means while you're at Walmart. It means while you're at the gas station. It means while you're stuck in traffic. We can be pretty good people at church most of the time, but God's more interested in how we act the rest of the time. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 12, to live such good lives that among the pagans, that you would be beyond reproach, that uh, when they accuse you of wrongdoing, that they would see instead your good deeds. Max Lucado tells a story in one of his books about going in to uh, get uh, breakfast at a place that he knew of. It was kind of a story. You walked in and you could get uh, uh, all the, the basically sausage and eggs you wanted for breakfast for about $2. And uh, he was standing in line and there was a guy that came in and he was wearing sandals and a long tunic and had kind of a scraggly looking beard and and the man asked the person behind the counter a lot of questions. Well, can I get like a, uh, you know, a tortilla with sausage and eggs in it? And do you have any that doesn't have the sausage, just has eggs and potatoes? And how many potatoes? He's asking lots of questions. And is there salt on it? The lady behind tipped up the skillet so that uh, he could see what was, was in the skillet. And finally gets his thing. And another man comes out from behind the counter as this lady's making breakfast. He's unaware of whether or not this somewhat odd-looking man has been helped or not. And, and so he, he says to the man, he says, Are you, have you been helped? And the man says, Yes, I've been helped, but I want to ask you a question. Do you know Jesus Christ? Because I'm his prophet and I'm sent to you. Imagine waiting on that guy. Max Locator records that as he was on his way out to the parking lot, a fellow from his church big strapping guy wearing blue jeans and a polo shirt and tennis shoes, came up and saw him and rushed out to throw his arms around him, give him a big hug, ask him how things were going, and then imparted a blessing to him. He said later he got thinking about it, and it was interesting because both these gentlemen represented Jesus Christ, or so they said. Both of them blessed the people to whom they spoke. He said the difference was is that one of them looked the part of a prophet, the other acted the part of a Christian. One of them uh, had to tell you that he represented Christ and the other one just showed it through his life. I, I don't know that we need to go around in society always waving the flag and saying, look at me, I'm a Christian, but people should know it without us having to tell them. They should see such a difference in our communications and our ethics in the way we conduct our business that they look and they say unmistakably, that guy has something different. He's one of those Bible-thumping Christians. He goes around loving his family and treating others right, and he's on the straight and narrow. Folks, that's what they ought to see. They ought to see a difference. We need to live righteously. We need to pray unceasingly. And then verses 3 and 4, we need to evangelize fervently. Did you notice what he says? He says, this 
That is, living a quiet and peaceful life in all godliness and honesty. He says, this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will have all men, not just some, but all, to be saved and to come into the knowledge of the truth. There's a whole lot about God that you and I can't understand, and if we could understand, we'd be God. It's appropriate we can't understand God or He wouldn't be worth worshiping. There is the truth in Scripture that of the election of the saints. But quite frankly, that biblical truth is not my responsibility. My responsibility is the biblical truth of Romans 10, 13, that whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Our responsibility is to follow Him so that we can be fishers of men. And yet 95% of all Christians have never shared their faith, ever, ever. 95%, 95 out of every 100 Christians has never shared the gospel with a single soul. I was blessed to meet a man the other day, he's a dentist. Uh, he has, uh, was one of the two or three dentists responsible in the United States for developing dental implants. Now, those are those expensive things when you lose a tooth and you don't want dentures that they can go in and they can actually screw down into your jawbone and then put the tooth on top of it. It's permanent. You don't ever have to take it out. It's quite an invention. I'm sure this guy's made a lot of money because he's one of the two or three dentists that come up with this idea and with the procedure. And Dr. Heller is uh, uh, sat down with me. He said, let me show you how I share the gospel. Because he had a guy in his dental chair one time this guy must have had guts because he basically told a dentist with a drill in his hand that he was going to hell. I, I think I'd wait until after I got the Novocaine shot. But he realized that even though he was going to church and he was on the church board, that he didn't really have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. And now the great passion of Dr. Heller's life is to show people how to be saved. He's developed a real non-threatening way of doing it. And I, I, the other day, got on his website, and uh, uh, it's called MayIShare.com. If you want to go out and investigate it, and you can print up color tracks, and then there's a video on the website that shows you how to use it in a non-threatening way. And I've got the video, and with Brother Henry's permission, we'll show it here and give you all a copy of this so you can learn a way to share Jesus Christ with somebody without feeling like you're having to be pushy about it. But that's a great passion of his life. It's not teeth, it's souls. But you know, it's an easy thing. The other day, my kids went out to Walmart and just the space of a short time, they managed to pass out around 100 tracks. You know, it only takes about five seconds to give somebody a track if you've never done anything else before. There's lots of clever tracks, and, and I, you know, I emphasize you've got to ask permission to give it to them. You can't just force it on them. You know, Walmart be kicking your can out the door if you do. They'd ask people, and people would take the tracks. It's so important that we do something because it's God's will that every man should be saved. Now, will every man be saved? Absolutely not. Because some will refuse to accept the gift of God's Son. And coming to church and being a member at South Park isn't enough to get you through the gates of heaven. At some point, you've got to stop and say, God, I can't do it on my own. Yeah, I'm amazed. Uh, in Sunday school this morning, talking from Matthew chapter 18. Remember that story about the guy that he went to the king, and the king was taking 
account of certain, a certain king, it says, would take an account, and he found one that owed him 10,000 talents. You know how much money that is? A denarii was a day's wage. They worked 12 hours a day. If you work 12 hours a day and you got something around minimum wage, let's just round it off to $5 an hour, that's about 60 bucks a day. It took 6,000 denarii to make one talent. That's tw one talent then is 20 years worth of wages. This man owed him 10,000 talents, which means he owed an amount equivalent to 200,000 years worth of wages. In modern terms, that was the equivalent of 3.6 billion, with a B, billion dollars. And when he comes before the king, he tells the king, he says, Lord, have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. I, Lord, if you give me a little more time, I'll come up with a 3.6 billion dollars. I'll come up with the 200,000 years of wages. And if you don't recognize what's going on in the story, Jesus in the last verse of Matthew 18 makes it plain that the king in the story is God the Father because he says, So shall my Father do also unto you if you forgive not men their trespasses. And yet I see people all the time that think somehow or other they can pay their way to heaven. I can be good. I can go to church. I can be a little better than the guy down the street. I can be respectable. I cannot smoke, don't chew, and don't go with girls that do. And somehow or other, that'll get me into heaven. And it's like you owe $3.6 billion and you can't pay it off. And yet the king, because he's a king that is so powerful and so rich and so wealthy that $3.6 billion is just a drop in the bucket to him, he's willing to forgive your debt. And you know, it's just stupid if we don't accept that gift of Jesus Christ dying for our sins. And it's even more stupid. If we've been forgiven $3.6 billion and we don't go out and tell everybody how great the king is and how wonderful he is to be able to forgive such a debt. That's so important. A number of years ago, and I tell you what, we're coming to the end of a great era in history. I don't know if you recognize this or not. They're saying that it's possible Billy Graham may have preached his last crusade I pray not. I pray God will let him in the pulpit again. What an awesome ministry that fellow has had. One of the men who was an associate of Billy Graham was a gentleman by the name of Leighton Ford. And Leighton Ford was once preaching a revival in Nova Scotia. He was to be the speaker the first night. Billy Graham was to be the speaker the second night. And as he got up to preach and share the gospel, Billy Graham came in and he was at the back of the crowd. He was wearing a coat and sunglasses so nobody really recognized him. And during the invitation, he thought he'd do a little personal evangelism. So he leaned up and he tapped the shoulder of the guy in front of him. And he said to him, he says, Would you like to accept Christ? I'll walk down with you if, if you want to. 
And the man turned and replied to him, Now nah, I'm just going to wait till the big guns come tomorrow night. Well, Leighton Ford and Billy Graham chuckled over that for a lot of years. But it shows the fact that I think some people think evangelism the task of the big guns. But God needs the little shots too. And he needs us to share the gospel. I don't know if you know who Rock and Rollin' Stewart is, but this guy, when he was saved out of drugs and alcohol and, and uh, other things I won't mention, he got so converted that he s- decided he had money saved up. And so Rollin' Stewart drives 55,000 miles every year to football games. And you've probably seen him because he always gets a seat in the end zone and he holds up a simple sign that says John 3.16. Now, I don't think when you see that every time that it's him. I think it's kind of caught on now. And I don't know that a single person has ever been saved looking at a John 3.16 shot in an end zone. But hey, he's doing something. He's doing something. One time D.L. Moody was criticized for his evangelism methods. And D.L. Moody just simply replied, he says, well, I I like my way of doing it better than your way of not doing it. (laughs) Get some tracks. Pastor's got some in his office. Go to a store this week and just say, this is a good one. Richard taught me this one. He says, just walk up to somebody and says, have you got one of these? People think they're left out because they don't have one and they'll take the track. That's a pretty simple approach. I watched him the other night give out 200 tracks in a space of about 20 minutes down here at Benbrook when they were having a, a tribute to soldiers on a Sunday night. You know, that's, that's easy. Have you got one of these? You know what? They may actually read it. And maybe it won't be that moment. Maybe it'll be a week later. Maybe it'll be 10 years later. But the Word of God always accomplishes the purpose that God sends it out to. God promises us that in Isaiah 55. We just need to do something to share. One Sunday, it was a little girl coming home from church. Kids have a lot of interesting questions. I've heard a lot of interesting questions about God. Once upon a time, uh, Judy and I used to write these questions that our kids would ask about God down, and we were putting a little book and it's one of those things that we don't know where it's at now, but if we ever find it again, it's going to be a bestseller. I love to hear kids ask a question. And this question was a pretty logical question. A little girl asked her mother, she says, Mom, there's something in the preacher's sermon I don't understand. Imagine that. He said, what's that? And she says, well, the preacher says, God's so big he can hold the whole world in his hand. Is that true? And the mother said, yes, that's true. He says, but mama, the preacher says that, that God can come live in our heart. Is that true? Mama said, yes, that's true. She said, well, mama, if God's so big, he can hold the whole world in his hand, but he can come live in my heart. If he's that big and he's in my heart, wouldn't he kind of break through where everybody could see him? Wow. Let me ask you the question tonight. Are you breaking through? Is Jesus breaking through where people can see you? Does he show on your face? 
Is it showing the way you behave? Is it showing the way you treat others? Are you kind to others? Are you loving toward them? Do you go out of your way to serve others? Do you show the love of Christ to others? Do you take the time to just give somebody a tract someday and say, here, I want you to know about a friend of mine? Or simply say, have you got one of these? Is he big and in your heart, and is he shining through? Folks, we need to pray fervently. We need to live righteously. And we need to share the gospel with all our heart. Brother Phil's going to come and lead us in a song. Let me ask you to stand. And tonight, there's nothing... uh, It's not one of these messages I'll I'll go home and think, wow, that was profound, because there's nothing profound in this message. It's simple. It's nothing you haven't heard from your pastor a gazillion times in the almost five decades he's been your pastor. But you know, maybe we just need to afresh say again tonight, Lord, make us the Christians we ought to be. That's all. I'm not the Christian I ought to be. How about you? Tonight's a good night to say, Lord, make me that person. You come to the altars, Brother Phil leads us in song. He asking you to come tonight and just say, Lord, make me the man or woman I ought to be. Take this opportunity while you can. Thank you so much, and uh, I'm going to ask.